Good morning. It's very nice to see all of you. Uh, please open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one into your laps. Raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Please feel free to keep this Bible. If you don't have one, keep it and give it away or you can leave it on the seat when you leave. Now, while you're turning to John chapter 20 or waiting for a Bible to come to you, uh, one additional announcement I want to make, the first Wednesday in September, we are restarting up this, well, we're starting this fall's Wednesday evening study, um, and I'll be teaching one class this, this fall, it's called Imago Christi, it's a biblical anthropology, and given um, all that we've been seeing in the cultural insanity regarding uh, marriage, sexuality, gender, um, ethnicity, and more, and all the turmoil, what we need is God's word to um, tell us the truth. And so that will be the aim in this class, is to develop from the word of God a biblical anthropology of understanding what it means to be a human person um, in the context of our current cultural moment. So that's going to be from 6.30 to 8 p.m., and on Wednesday nights in this room. So stay tuned for that. Well, we are um, joyfully getting back into our Gospel of John series. And um, with that, let me go ahead and read John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, to set God's word before us. And today, the aim of this message is to refresh our minds and our hearts on an overview of the entirety of the Gospel of John. It's been some, some time since we've been in the book, and so rather than jumping right into John 13 and the Upper Room Discourse, let's reorient our hearts. So with that, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, I'm going to read this, I'll pray, and then we'll look to God and His Word. John 20, verse 30. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, that is what we each need most of all, that you would grant us the gift of faith and that we would believe, understand and embrace that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that he is the Son of God in flesh. And that by believing in the name of Jesus, you would give us eternal life. Not just life of duration, but of eternal quality in the joy of the Lord. And Lord, you inspired by your spirit, the Apostle John, to pen this letter. And so we pray that this morning you would open up and give us the ability to see the forest for the trees and to see how John labors under your inspiration to give us all that we need to truly believe that Jesus is the Christ. So Lord, for those who don't believe, save in this place. And those of us who do believe, strengthen our, our faith and grant us the gift of, of wonder at who Jesus is in his person and in his works. And so Lord, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, as hinted at in what I've said and prayed, to take things back to the most important place they can be, it's this question, the most important question that every single human person, every, every person, every human being, the most important question that every single one of you can ask and answer is, who is Jesus Christ? That's the most important question. But then what you do with your answer, according to God, determines your eternity, whether 
in glory of heaven or the turmoils and travails of hell for eternity. What, how you answer and what we do with that answer of who is Jesus Christ is the most important question that every human being must ask and answer in this life. Now to be clear, we don't determine who Jesus is. He is not a figment of our imagination. The question is if we embrace who Jesus says he is and believe him at his word. For those of us who know who Jesus is, knowing and growing in our knowing of him will be the pleasure of our eternity in the new heavens and new earth with him, ever growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But some of you are here this morning and you don't yet know Christ. And so, friend, I would encourage you, take notes, listen attentively, weigh what you hear in the balance, but understand that we as a people have come to know that Jesus Christ is not a legend, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he is the Lord. And so this morning what we do is we, we are finding ourselves in the doorway to the upper room of John 13. John is about to beckon us in and we're going to enter into this what's commonly called the farewell discourse or upper room discourse. And John's aim in his gospel, as I just read in John 20, is singular. Glorifying Christ, glorifying the triune God by leading us to believe in Jesus. Now before we step into this doorway of John 13, we need a refresher and a walk through this gospel account. That's our aim this morning. Not to look at the trees, not to look at the bark on the trees, but to take a step back and look at the lay of the land and to see the whole forest in one shot. Because John tells us the purpose of the book, that we would believe and have life in Jesus' name, verses 30 and 31 here in chapter 20, which means everything from 1-1 on is to that end. And so we're going to get this refresher. We're going to remember where we have been, see where we are going, and how John fits this good news all together such that we would be left closing this book saying, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the sermon this morning comes in three parts. Here they are. Number one, we're going to discover, as I've already said, the purpose of John's gospel is that we might believe in Jesus together. That's the purpose of his gospel. In your devotions and in your reading and as you get back into this book and read along as we move through the text, it is that those of you who don't have faith would have faith and those of us who have faith, it would be strengthened in Christ. Number two, and this is our longest point and where we'll spend most of the time, six literary threads that build belief in Jesus Christ. So there's six subpoints to this point. And we're going to see six different things. We're not going to see all the things that John has to say, but six key features of the gospel of John that make it unique that John uses to weave a tapestry so that we would, or the Spirit would build belief in Jesus Christ. And then we will close, again, seeing that we are to follow Jesus together by faith in John 10. Well, let's jump right in. Point number one. The purpose of John's gospel is that we, that you, that we might believe in Jesus together. Again, listen to um, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book. But these are written, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And if you turn your page, perhaps, John 21, the last chapter of the book, and skip down to the last verse of the book, verse 25, listen to what John says once again. John alerts us to this fact. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so what we see, as with all the inspired writers of the Bible, as the Holy Spirit works through men to write Scripture, 
they're not saying all there is to say, but they are selectively arranging and choosing events from the life of Christ and forming them together to give us a theological interpretation and understanding of who Jesus is and what our triune God in Christ has done to save lost sinners like you and me. Now, a key word that we've heard so far is the word believe. If you were to go through and take a pen and just mark every reference in the Gospel of John, mark every reference to the verb believe, it occurs 98 times in this book. 98 times from the first chapter to last, we are exhorted or we see people or we see people not believing or people believing 98 times. And corresponding to that, 55 times the word life or eternal life or some form of it occurs in this book. That means, on average, every fifth verse, every fifth verse in this gospel account, John is appealing, either stepping in as a narrator and talking to you, or through the words of Jesus or the followers of Jesus, we are, it's being appealed to us that we should believe in Jesus because all that we're seeing in this gospel is giving us all the evidence that we need to believe in Jesus. Or conversely, we learn that if you do not believe in Jesus, if you don't swear allegiance to him, declare him your king, renounce your sins, repent of them and follow him, if you don't believe in Jesus, John tells us, that you are condemned already, are in your sins, and God's wrath remains on you. So it's a very evangelistic gospel. It's very evangelistic in his efforts to tell us the truth of Christ. So every word that he has penned, as you read through John, as we preach through it, every word penned is to the singular purpose of faith leading you to entrusting the whole of your existence to King Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man. So faith and believing is key in this book. It should mess with our hearts and souls. It should change us. It should save the lost and, and those of us who are no longer lost but found in Christ as we follow the Good Shepherd. Faith should have an amazing effect. Tom Schreiner says, for John, believing or faithing is a dynamic reality. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, is necessary in order to enjoy eternal life. But John uses many different terms and expressions to help you and me understand what does it actually mean to believe in Jesus. And from Jesus' own lips... They convey the nature of faith. So, in John, we learn that faith beholds, it obeys, it keeps, it abides. It follows, it comes, it enters, it goes. Faith eats, faith drinks, faith loves, hears, and faith sees Jesus. All these pictures in the Gospel of John are helping us understand what it means not just to believe in Jesus, but then follow Jesus to faith together in Jesus. And so every teaching, every conversation, every sign Jesus performs, every rebuke of the religious leaders, every one of John's narrative comments, each one on its own, taken all together, are designed by God's Spirit to strengthen your faith, to give you faith, to gift faith, grant repentance, and give eternal life in God's love in Christ. Indeed, one of the marvelous things about John, if, when you consider the grade level of writing of the different biblical authors, John is the lowest grade writer. He is the simplest author. And yet, one of the most profoundly profound writers. The Gospel of John, it turns out, shows us how the patterns, pictures, prophecies, and promises of the Old Testament find their end goal and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. To the end that 
we would believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And so that then, the purpose of John's gospel is that we would believe in Jesus, keep believing in Jesus, be strengthened in our belief in Jesus, and follow him together. This leads us to the second point then, six literary threads that build belief in Jesus Christ. So we're going to pick up the diamond, that is the gospel of John, and we're going to turn it over in our hands. We're going to look at some different facets, different things, different ways that John literarily is going to help us understand, help you have confidence why you should believe in Jesus. And some of you are going to praise the Lord. There's going to be charts. (laughs) You're welcome, which means you can pull your phone out, snap a photo, pinch and zoom if you need to. So six literary threads that are going to combine together to weave a tapestry so we would build belief in Jesus Christ, number one. John's use of timestamps in the book of John. One thing that's interesting, I'm not sure how you approach reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think sometimes we can approach them and think, that it's sort of a stale, historical regurgitation of what Jesus did. He did this, he did this, he said that, he did this, he said that. What we don't realize is that each author, not just of the gospel accounts, every single author of the Bible, spent time under the inspiration of the Spirit crafting his message so that we would understand the gospel all the more. And here's what's unique with John and his timestamps. So we'll see, so here's the chart, it's already up there. So in the prologue, and we'll see this more in the second point, John links the beginning of his gospel account as the New Testament version of Genesis in the Old Testament, in the beginning. We'll return to that. But in terms of timestamps, and we can lose this, when you get to John 1.19, and you just read through all the way to the end of chapter 12, you may not notice, but three years transpire in those 12 chapters. Three years unfold. But where we are as a church family, on the cusp of getting into John 13, now as we get into John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, John's literary strategy goes from three years to three hours. So it's a radical slowdown of sitting with the disciples, moving from public ministry and public signs to private ministry and a private meal with his disciples across those five chapters. Three years to three hours. Now, technically speaking, it never says it's a three-hour meal, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that it's probably pretty close to that. And then, after the three-hour meal, when Jesus then goes on into his trial and death, burial, and resurrection, it goes into three days. And then there's an epilogue at the end, which we looked at some of those verses that tells us that Jesus is coming back. So when you're reading John, be sensitive to where you're at in the gospel account and whether he's accelerating through three years or slowing down for three hours or looking to three days. Be aware of that. Number two, John, as I mentioned a moment ago, is the New Testament book of Genesis. Now, technically speaking, if you open to Matthew 1, in Greek, Matthew begins, Biblos Geneseos, book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. But if you notice the words, turn to John 1 with me, if you would. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, let me read these for you, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you notice those opening words, as you look at the very first verse, by the Spirit, John deliberately links 
the opening words of the gospel account, John 1.1, with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And these words, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, are unbelievably tight, woven with meaning. Wonders pile upon wonders. We are reaffirmed that there is one and only one God, and yet this one God is triune. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later, we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. So we understand that there's one God who exists in three persons. But even more than that, the Word is the source. So the second person of the Trinity, the Word, is the source of all light, all that is good, the source of all life, meaning there is nothing created that does not owe its creational allegiance to Jesus. Meaning that you exist right now because Jesus willed and made you to exist. And in fact, he brought you here this morning so that you would hear that truth and cherish that truth about him. In verse 5, we're alerted that there is evil and hatred and unbelief directed toward the life and light. The darkness that is all those creatures who exist in opposition to the word. If you back up a verse in verse 4, we see that he's creational. I mentioned that. Verse 3, back up again. The word, we discover, is not only the agent of creation... Given John's location in Scripture, now think about this with me. The Word is not only the Creator from Genesis 1, given His location in telling us these truths here in the Gospel of John in the beginning of the New Testament, John is implying a key truth that courses through the veins of the Gospel of John that the Word is not just the Creator, He is the Recreator. So you can go to John 3, and we learn about the need to be born again, that you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're first born again. You see, all the gospel accounts, especially John, sit at the long Old Testament road of sorrow, suffering, and sin. And all the previous prophets not only show that every single one of us, you and me, everybody, we not only need repentance and rescue from our sins against God, we need nothing less than new creation. We ourselves are broken by sin, infected by sin, and therefore we need nothing less than new hearts. Washed by the Spirit, we need to be born again, born from above, made a new creation. Not just this world needs to be made new, not just other people need to be made new, you need to be made new. That's the resounding drumbeat across the Old Testament. And so God's answer, God's answer to make us new is nothing less than God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so the question then, when John gives us these words, when he's deliberately linking this as not just an, a, a reiteration of the book of Genesis, but now he's reiterating that there's actually an emphasis of new creation, the question is, do you believe that? He's teaching that Jesus is not just the creator, he's the recreator by his spirit. And so the hope that we didn't even know we needed to hope in has arrived. His name is Jesus, and he is willing and able in his sovereignty to recreate us. That is the message that we see in the linking of John with Genesis. Do you believe this? Because if you believe this, you will have eternal life in his name. Do you believe this? Are you building your life around the truth that you need not just renovation and not just reformation. You need nothing less than recreation by the Spirit of Christ. Do you trust Jesus to make you a new creation? That's why John is writing this and more. This opening salvo of just a few verses, and there's so much more in them, are a shaft of light piercing through the long, dark uh, history of this world and your life 
to show you the truth of Jesus. So you need to be aware of that. As you read through the Gospel of John, look for those new creation motifs, death to life, darkness to light, and more. Third, the temple. If you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that Jesus is traveling all over the place, all over Israel. He spends a lot of time in different places, and really the, the end of those three gospel accounts is dominated by being in Jerusalem and at the temple. Not the case with John. If you read through John and you begin to look at the geographical location stamps, where's the setting of this story? Of the 21 chapters of John, 16 place Jesus in Jerusalem, usually at the temple. That's 75% of the book. Only five chapters have Jesus somewhere other than Jerusalem. So if you're watching the movie of the Gospel of John, in the background is going to always be a picture of the temple in the city of David. Or him walking through the various colonnades and pools and columns and things along those lines. That is not a literary accident. It's theologically significant. Why does John make Jerusalem, and especially the temple, the key location and setting of the entire book? Well, perhaps you remember the story. Israel's portable tent in the wilderness, called the tabernacle, and later its fixed temple, was the theological center of Israel. Because the temple is the heart of the nation of Israel. It was where God dwelt. The temple, the tabernacle, then the temple, it was his heavenly throne's footstool joining heaven and earth. And the tabernacle and temple were um, architecturally stylized, and the artistry and tapestries on it, it was stylized as a portable and then fixed Garden of Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve dwelt face to face with God until they sinned and plunged the human race into rebellion and death. And for Old Testament Israel, the people did not have access to God's glorious and pleasurable presence like Adam and Eve did, but they, he was still among them, but at a greatly separated distance. So if you were with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and they camped in concentric circles of holiness around the tabernacle. And later when Solomon built the temple and Jerusalem was built around it, it was as if God was dwelling among his people like he walked among them in the garden. But now because of sin and human rebellion, we have the priesthood and the sacrificial system and more. In fact, in the Old Testament, we discovered that the priests could enter only part of the temple, and only the high priest, only once a year, on one day could he enter the Holy of Holies, God's footstool throne room, to atone for people's sins with a sacrificial substitute of the blood of animals. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, you know what happened. After centuries and generations and generations of covenant breaking, Moses taught them a song about their covenant breaking down through Hosea and God's divorce certificate to the people of Israel. Centuries of unfaithfulness and covenant breaking, God's presence in the book of Ezekiel gets up and leaves the temple. God exiles himself east out of the temple in the book of Ezekiel. Whereas his glory cloud came upon the temple, the tabernacle and temple under Moses and Solomon, the time of Ezekiel, his presence leaves. Then God sends Babylon into Israel to destroy Israel and to destroy his temple palace and break it down to the ground. God had left. And this is where one of the greatest ironies of the Gospel of John comes in. You see, the people did return to the land in the Old Testament. They did rebuild the temple. But one thing that's absent when you read Ezra and Nehemiah is the glory cloud never returns. Not like it did with Moses, not like it, it, it moved with Solomon. 
And so the people had rebuilt this temple, and Jerusalem still operated around the temple, but God wasn't there. His presence wasn't there. And the religious leaders were creating man-made rules to burden the people and more. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In my ESV, when it says dwelt, the word literally in the Greek is skene, it's tabernacled. John is, just as the first verses are linking the Gospel of John with the book of Genesis in John 1.14, another strategy here is that John is telling us, guess what? The glory cloud has returned with skin on, and his name is Jesus. And no longer is the tabernacle the place of God's dwelling. No longer is the temple of, the, 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 um, the rebuilt temple is the place of God's dwelling. Jesus is the place of God's dwelling. He is the portable tent of God walking among us. The glory cloud of, cloud, the glory cloud of God has returned, not to fill the temple, though ironically the glory cloud in Christ, Jesus was walking along in the temple so much. Remember what he did in John 2 when he made the whip and whipping guys and beasts and drip, driving them out of the temple, his father's house? No, the cloud didn't return to fill the building, not to fill the temple made by hands, but to be the embodied temple, the word taking on flesh, God the Son incarnate. You turn over to chapter 2. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 18 to 22. He has just overturned the tables. He's made the whip. He's driven everybody out. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them as he was standing in the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to, them, said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And here John helps us, verse 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered they had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, what John is showing us in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and down through as this setting is dominated in Jerusalem and mainly in the temple is that the temple is not the temple. Jesus is the temple forever, finally, and fully. And so because of that, we have something greater than Israel had in the temple and tabernacle. We have something even better than, God, than God's spirit and corporeal presence in the Garden of Eden we actually have God with skin on. Truly God and truly man, yet without sin, Jesus Christ. You see, God couldn't be touched in the garden when he walked with Adam and Eve. And he certainly could not even be approached in the tabernacle, tabernacle and temple. But now in Jesus, he approaches you to touch you, to put his hand on your shoulder and give an embrace. God approaches us when once he couldn't be approached. God comes to touch us to heal us where he once couldn't be touched. And so John's question is, do you believe this? The recreator has entered into his own creation in the person of his son to live for us and die for us and rise for us for you to bring you to himself. Do you believe? And the glorious truth is that all the promises and all the hopes, because the temple was the dominant piece of architecture with the Holy of Holies inside it all through the Old Testament, now it has skin on. His name is Jesus. Why did God do this? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only of a kind son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. 
God has given his one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, to live the life that you cannot live and the life that you wouldn't choose to live in complete and perfect loving devotion to God. Jesus has lived in our place. He has taken our sins against God upon himself on that cross. And Jesus has conquered Satan and death and risen for our sins and our justification in our place. He is the king of the universe. And those truths are yours if you believe them. And if you don't believe, they're not your truth. Meaning, it doesn't make the truth not true in the postmodern stupidity of our world. It just means that it's not appropriated to eternal life. So friends, I ask you, what will you do? Will you believe in this Jesus? We worship and serve a God who has a gloriously relentless plan to save and dwell among his people. That's the story arc of all of scripture from the garden Exiled, tabernacle, temple, presence leaves, incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ, with us forever. All believers now built into um, part of the temple of Christ. The church is not the temple of God apart from Christ. It's because we're united to Christ. He's the cornerstone. Don't misunderstand as if there's multiple different temples, which is why we are now in Christ, the temple into eternity. That's the irony that John wants you to see as you smile your way through reading the Gospel of John of this sweet and, in cases, bitter irony that Jesus is the true temple of God in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why the setting and geography and location is so important. It's riddled with irony. Next, fourth point. Jesus fulfills the feasts. So not only woven through this book is it a rereading of the book of Genesis, but now through the lens of recreation. Not only is Jesus the new and true temple, and not only those truths, we also see that Jesus fulfills the feasts. A key thing for John, while Jesus is in Jerusalem and at the temple, it's usually and almost always during some or one of the Jewish feasts. And so the gospel account is arranged in Jerusalem at the temple around feasts. And these feasts serve as the um, reason by which Jesus teaches what he teaches and performs the signs that he performs. You can see here in this chart the different feasts, but you'll notice that in the beginning, middle, and end, the one feast that dominates Jesus' ministry is Passover. The Passover. Now, God designed each of those feasts to point to and prepare the way of understanding the personal work of Jesus. We'll just take one, the Passover. You remember that ancient evening in the book of Exodus when God delivered Israel from bondage to slavery in Egypt when the angel of death took the lives of the firstborn in homes that weren't covered in the blood of the lamb. The angel of death passed over homes that not only were covered in the blood of the lamb, but while the blood of the lamb was painted on their doorposts, remember what they were doing inside the home? roasting the lamb as a stew and eating it. So the angel of death is passing over homes covered in the blood of the lamb as the people eat the lamb. And it's called the Passover. You fast forward, and this became a memorial every year. They were supposed to keep for all their generations. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene in John 1.29, heralding, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And with that thundering sentence, John combines all the various sacrificial systems associated with the Levitical priesthood, festivals, and more into those words. Behold, he says of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here, as Jesus fulfills the feast and Passover happens three different times, on the night of his betrayal, which we're about to get into in John 13... Jesus pronounced the true meaning and significance of the Passover. Namely, that his death, not an animal lamb, 
but Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, his death would finally and fully atone for sins because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They just temporarily cover it. And when Jesus took the wine and the bread that were used in the meal, he said, no longer do these point to an animal. They point to the true Lamb of God, me. This is my body and blood broken and shed for you. And no longer is the Passover to be celebrated once a year. It's to be celebrated by his followers, the church, every time they assemble. And what we typically call today is the Lord's Supper or communion or simply the table. In John 13 through 17, those chapters, that's the setting of the Passover meal, which we'll get, on, we'll get into in the coming weeks. Jesus, then, is not only the true temple of God, he's also the true priest who can offer the true and final sacrifice, and Jesus is the true final and full sacrifice for sin so that no sacrifice ever needs to be made again. Read the book of Hebrews. That's why the Passover in John is so significant. As he keeps bringing us back to this moment, and so that that moment of the angel of death passing over in Exodus and all through the history of Israel and that longing need, when will my sins be atoned for? When will they be washed away? When will we be delivered? When will the second Exodus begin? When can we be liberated? John subtly shows us it's happened in Jesus. And so again, John's question to you is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is not only the true temple, do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who alone can take away all of your sins, past, present, and future? His work on the cross is not a meager work. Jesus died for specific people, for specific sins, all of them. And the question is, do you accept this free and glorious gift of Christ's sacrifice for us? He is a glad and willing Savior, the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice all in himself. That's why they're all in the Old Testament, to let us know who Jesus is and all these things Woven in the tapestry of John is so that we would believe the glorious truth that the sacrifice of animals is just a reminder of our sins and a need every single year for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the scapegoat, and all that whole system. But now that Jesus has come, he's sitting down. He's seated on his throne. Our king priest doesn't have any more work to do because it's, what did he say from the cross? Finished. So John wants you to think about that and believe it. Fifth, not only do we have the temple and the book of Genesis and the feasts, Jesus performs seven signs across this book. And as I said, they're usually, these signs are associated with certain feasts and they usually take place in Jerusalem. Now John's unique because he uses the word sign. So as you're reading through, you're going to keep coming across this word and I even read to us in chapter 20, he did many other signs. First of all, what does that mean? Well, what it means in the Bible is that Jesus has done something supernatural, and what he does speaks beyond itself to a spiritual truth. It's not allegory where we just make up our own spiritual meanings to it. These signs are meant to both authenticate the message of the messenger, but to also teach what the message of the messenger is doing. So you see these. Water to wedding wine. Healing the official's son across time and space. Healing the invalid by the pool. Feeding the multitude. You can see in brackets here, walking on water. Healing the man born blind with dirt. Um... What was the last time we saw God use dirt for something? Yeah, that's Genesis 2, the creation of Adam. Only God can use dirt to bring life. What did Jesus do? He used dirt and mud and spit to bring sight to this man. 
because he's the creator. Raising Lazarus from four days dead, and then brackets again, Jesus raising himself from the dead. Those brackets are there because there's debate about which is the seventh sign. Some say walking on the water. I don't think that is, because Jesus has said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then um, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures, because they asked, what sign do you show us? So the seventh sign is when Jesus raised himself from the dead. So what's the point? That you would believe. These aren't myths, fables, and fairy tales. Jesus actually did these things and so much more. These seven signs, again, note the significance of numbers, join together to point to a reality that all the old prophets promised. Pause. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did all his miracles and cast out demons and healed the sick and the lame and did those things? Was he just a really kind magician? No. These signs in John and all the miracles Jesus did was a portrait of the new creation breaking into this cursed creation. That's what you must understand about every single thing that he does. Is when Jesus heals, when he does those things, it is the promised new creation in the future the not yet part, becoming already right now. Sickness, deformity, destruction, and death, which are normal for us, are entirely abnormal to God's kingdom. They're abnormal and a parasitic curse to God's original creation. They are the thorns that come out in the curse of the fall. So what Jesus did when he cast it, when he walked around casting out demons, giving sight to the blind and healing the lame and letting them walk and all that he did, Jesus was doing the most normal thing there is to do when you're from the new creation. And the new creation breaks into the old creation. That is, you slay sickness, you undo death, you defang the devil. That's what Jesus is good at. You see, what he did, those were pockets of future glory breaking into the present through the words of the word made flesh dwelt among us. And so John intends these signs not only to authenticate the words of Jesus, but that you would believe in Jesus. That you'd get a foretaste and glimpse of what glory is going to look like, but how it's broken into the now. And then we would see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that these signs would serve to soften our hearts. Indeed, by the Spirit, give us new hearts. But we also see in the Gospel of John that these signs serve to harden unbelieving hearts. And so again, John asks, how about you? What do you do with this information? This is not inert information. And inactive information, meaning there's a singular purpose in God's word exposed to us in the signs that Jesus does. It's going to either harden your heart or give you a new one. And for those of us who have new ones, it puts gems and jewels of gospel truths deeper into the soil of our hearts so that those gems and jewels would sprout into something glorious as our faith increases in Christ. Do you believe... In that seventh and final sign, that Jesus rose himself from the dead. Because if you don't, you cannot be saved. But if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus got up, made his mom happy by folding his clothes, and walked out of the tomb. But when Jesus rose, he rose as the first fruits of his followers' resurrection. Meaning he's the prototype of what he's going to do for us. Just like our baptism shows. We don't stay in the water, we get out of the water. Washed clean, as it were, to new life in Christ. How about you? 
Do you believe that Jesus rose as the first fruits of your resurrection, conquering death in your place, that Jesus' resurrection is the only hope for eternal life beyond the grave and the prototype of his followers' resurrection? Friend, believe that today. You have no other hope in all the world, and our hope is only found in Jesus. Sixth and finally... Not only is there the temple and the book of Genesis and the feasts and the signs, Jesus is the great I am. You may recall, it's God's famous self-revelation to Moses in the burning bush when God named himself. When Moses said, who are you, Lord, so I can say who sent me? And he said, I am who I am. And the thing is, I am who I am is who Jesus claimed to be and why the Jews picked up stones and kept seeking to kill him all the more. While it would be an eternity to ponder what it means that God is, I am who I am, Jesus helps us. Here's another chart. Across the Gospel of John... Jesus makes these deliberate, emphatic statements that it kind of begs the question, when God says, I am who I am, then you might want to say, you are what? And Jesus tells us who he is. The bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. In fact, not only do you have those seven I am statements that unfold across the Gospel of John, some of them linked to features of the tabernacle, by the way, you also have emphatic statements where he's not saying I am something, he is simply saying he is. So, for example, when he walks on the water to the disciples in 620, he says, I am, do not be afraid. I am bothered by most of our English translations to make it more um, legible in English. They usually add, I am he. But that's not how it is in the Greek. Ego eimi. I am. He's saying the Greek version of what he said in Hebrew in the burning bush. Jesus is doing nothing less than claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. I am, do not be afraid. 824, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, or what really incensed the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then, a favorite scene of mine, the end of the gospel, he is about to be um, kidnapped, as it were, and illegally tried. They come out to him and they say, uh, looking for Jesus, and Jesus approaches his captors. Whom do you seek? Jesus says to them. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And do you remember what happens to them? The text says they drew back and fell to the ground. The tenor and truth of Jesus, who was allowing himself to be taken captive by simply uttering his name, Ego Amy, when he said those words, I am, it blew the soldiers back and onto the grounds. With simply the sword of his mouth, he's able to slay his enemies. This case, he just knocked them over. But all through John, another uh, tapestry woven through this book is that Jesus is no one less than the great I am himself. And since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he sets the terms and conditions of eternal life. So Jesus draws a line in the sand of your life. If you look back up at that, that chart in 824 of his emphatic statements, it says, unless, he says, you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, leading to eternal wrath. And so, friends, once again, John confronts us to each and every one of your hearts. Do not leave this room without addressing this question Jesus asks you and tells you 
unless you believe that he is the I am, you will die in your sins. So do you believe that Jesus is, I am, the word who is God and is with God in the flesh, truly God and truly man? You see, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is not ours to define, it is his to define. And when, because if you try to define who Jesus is on your own terms, you're inventing a fake Jesus and fake Jesus can't save. So when we're gifted with faith in these gospel truths, we are gifted with eternal life, which is not only life without end, but because of all this exquisiteness of who Christ is, his person and his work, what he has done for us, all of this imagery is meant to enrapture our souls and capture our minds to be riveted on the wonder and beauty of who God is in Christ. Simple words, profound truths. Do you believe that Jesus is, I am? And that leads us to the very brief final point. The response is obvious of the book, you must believe. But we don't believe in isolation and we don't believe in independence, independently. Uh, John chapter 10, please join me there. John chapter 10, turn over and look at verse 27. Here's what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The name of this series is Following Jesus together. The prayerful aim of our sojourning through this book as a church family is that is what we would do. We, Jesus' sheep, would hear his voice in his word, knowing that Jesus knows us, and in Jesus knowing us, that we would follow me. But Jesus has a herd mentality. Because he doesn't make us sheep by his spirit, as you've heard me say a number of times, to then go wander off independently in isolation on our own, doing church by ourselves in the woods, which you cannot. No, my sheep hear my voice, and so people of faith flock together. You see, the Gospel of John is also the story of people who believe Jesus, many do, for eternal life. Jesus comes to every single person, and he impacts them with the same gospel truth in different ways, right where they need it most, and he does the same to you and to me. We met Nicodemus in chapter 3. He was as much the social elite as they come, and Jesus met Nicodemus, humbled Nicodemus, loved Nicodemus, told Nicodemus the truth, and in the end, Nicodemus followed Jesus at great cost. But in chapter 4, we met a different follower of Jesus. The complete other end of the spectrum, the Samaritan woman. The opposite of Nicodemus, as much as there ever was an opposite, she was an outcast. The outcasts considered her an outcast. She was, you could not get any lower in society than the Samaritan woman. And so Jesus came to her and offered her living water. He met her in the place of her idolatry, the place of her sin, exposed them to her. She got saved. Jesus loved her, cared for her, humbled her, brought her to himself, and she went and preached the gospel in her village. John sets the spectrum from Nicodemus to the Samaritan woman, and everywhere in between resides you and me. If Jesus saves people like Nicodemus and Jesus saves people like the Samaritan woman, he saves people like you. He saves people like me. And Jesus, friends, is here today in his word. He's walking among us in his verbal presence. And so the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to all of these exquisite truths and treasures from the Bible? Will you come to the light and find your sins forgiven from the fountain that flows from the cross that is the blood of Christ? Will you let the light of Christ expose your sin? 
renounce that sin, repent of it, lay it at his feet, and receive his forever forgiveness? Or, like John chapter 3 says, will the light shine on your sin? Will you hate what you see and run away back to the darkness? Light and dark, two choices before you. We are on the empty tomb side of the gospel. The good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. Then he got up, walked out to gather his flock as the good shepherd. And those of us who have faith flock together to follow Jesus together, our good shepherd. That's why the series is called Following Jesus Together. Everything in this gospel of John is all the glorious evidence and truth you need to believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate, and because of God's love for us, came to save even you and me. And if you hear these words, and you're not a follower of Christ, they're for you too. Because Jesus has laid down his life, receive his life for yours. All the evidence you need is here, so ask God to cause you to be born again, to be that new creation, and find out that you are saved. And for those of us who do believe, friends, let's excel at strengthening each other's faith as we follow Jesus together by encouraging each other all the more with the magnificent qualities found in the Gospel of John of our magnificent Savior. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you obeyed the Father and with the Father and by your Spirit became incarnate through Mary and to us you have lived, died, and risen in our place and now Jesus as you're comfortably seated on the throne of the universe you have called us to yourself and commissioned us to be gospel ambassadors to one another and to those who don't yet know you outside and beyond. So Lord, would you grant us belief and in granting us belief in Jesus, giving us life in his name. We pray, amen.